This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 4th, 2021. This is episode 2819 of the Survival Podcast, and I'm calling it Dreaming of Spring and Planting Gardens. We're going to focus mostly on annual gardening today. That's what we're going to talk about, is getting ready for that, because... You know, perennials, we might be planting going into spring, but if we've already done that, they come back on their own. That's one of the beautiful things about them. Annuals and annual gardens create a cycle for us, the human. And I think that's a good thing. I I think whenever you get into permaculture, you have a tendency to gravitate to perennials. I know I did. And at some point, you might even shun annuals a little bit. I know I did. But I think that's part of your development as a designer. Like, even when I was doing that, people would say, well, what about annual gardens? Well, go ahead and put them into your plan, right? Like, I never said it was not a thing to do, and I don't think I ever had a season go by where I didn't do some annual gardening. Uh, God forbid that uh, a season goes by in the Spirico homestead and peppers are not grown. I mean, that's just, that's that's crazy talk. But I definitely did get to a point where I really didn't put much effort into annuals. And when I when I stopped doing it, a strange thing happened. It was like losing a friend in a way. It was weird. It was like, wait a minute, there's this thing that's supposed to be here, and it's not. There's this process, because it isn't just, oh, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a tomato to pick, right? Or there's a fennel bulb to pick, or there's some beans that we can uh, throw in the frying pan tonight. It's the entire process. Now, when I think about that, And what I was thinking about this morning is I was walking around and planting so many things. And, and, and honestly, I was planting less with annuals than perennials to, this morning. I was thinking of these bills that we have coming up and some things that I really need to get done. But I, I realized like the, the, the commonality amongst anybody that grows their own food on any level is there's probably some annuals in the mix. I figured that'd be a good way to come at it today. The other side of it, though, Whenever I talk about something you could call a permaculture topic, and definitely we'll bring some permaculture principles into this today, I always try to do it so that the overriding method makes sense for other things. So the person that might be even goes a little bit on the back porch or something, but they're not really a gardener, like, I still want you to get something out of this if you give the show a chance, if you give the episode a chance. I want you to think about the meaningfulness of, of what we're doing here. If you're more of a perennial person, like I still think you can gain from this. I do have a, a list toward the end where I'm going to give you 12 things I'll be growing this year. A lot of it I proved out last year, and some of it's some new things. Anyway, before we get into that, let's start out with a quote of the day. This is by Henry Rollins, and I thought it would be a perfect quote to go with today's show. In winter, I plot and plan... In spring, I move. Now, as you're going to hear today, there's actually a lot of moving in winter, getting ready for spring. Um, but I love the concept for today's suggestion and for life in general. Because this can be literally the winter that is the season of winter, or it can be a down period where you have to get ready for the next phase of your life, and it could be any time of year. When we, we look at it, though, as a gardener, I really believe that winter and the winter season is a gift. Now, that's odd for me to say because what I really thought today, because yesterday was like 70 degrees. I was walking around in a t-shirt and jeans and thinking I really should put shorts on, right? And then today, it's not really, really cold, but it's windy and you can feel the cold coming. And this is the fourth, And by the 10th, we're going to have freezing weather in the 20s, which is very cold for us. We seldom get into the teens. Low 20s is very, very much our typical average coldest time of year. And we're going to have that for about a four-day period where our lows will be in the 20s. And our highs will only either be in the very low 40s or high 30s. And that's when things like water systems and all break right? That's when we have to do things a little bit differently to get through it, because unlike you guys in the north, we don't prepare for winter the way that you do from a standpoint of infrastructure, because it, it economically doesn't make sense to put that much effort into something when you only have to deal with this a couple times a year, 
right? We don't, it's not like, like when I lived in Pennsylvania, and this is why I'm grateful I live here now, like your first freeze would probably be sometime in October. Your first hard freeze would definitely happen in November. Like you would never get through November without a hard freeze. And you still might get some Indian summer days, especially classically we would get some Indian summer days between like Christmas and New Year's. Like in that second season archery, second season muzzleloader season for deer hunting, like we would always get some really nice days in there. And then, and then like January and February, just forget about it. Unless you're an ice fisherman, you're, you're like cabin fever by the end of February. And that cabin fever period might last into April, like when finally um, trout season would come. They'd stock the trout streams, and you could go out and fish and all. And like sometimes the first day of trout season was really beautiful, and sometimes you're like, I don't know if, if it's worth being this cold for a freaking trout. I mean, it, it it varied. But then soon after that, spring would come. And that's the commonality. Like, my spring will be here before your spring if you live up where I used to live. But everybody's spring is coming fast right now. Everybody's spring is coming fast right now. And we really should enjoy the gift that we get in this period. Because it allows us, in the words of our quote today, to plot and plan. Even if we're also doing It gives us the pause to step back and say, okay, last year, what worked best? When did it start working? When did it stop working? And did it come back and work again? So for me last year, since I hadn't done annuals in a while, and I'd come up with a complete new garden system for doing animals for this property, It was like going back in time for me in a way. It was like going back to when I lived in Arlington and I had deep soil because I made my own deep soil where I had no deep soil. It's kind of like gardening in a parking lot here. But think of my property, best way to describe it. You've seen people do like gardens in, with big giant raised beds in parking lots. Okay, now take that parking lot and put it in central Texas where it routinely gets well over 100 degrees for the majority of the day in the summer. That's already bad. And then go ahead and cover the entire parking lot with dirt, but with an average depth of two inches. And then say, well, I'm going to grow deep roots. How? Right? And, and imagine the parking lot's made of concrete. It's not made of macadam. That can, it's much easier for plants to break through. right? Because my rock layer is a lot like an eternal layer. And I don't know how long it goes before it stops being rock, but it's, we've never gotten that deep. And we've managed in certain spots to rip out down almost six foot. And it's just solid rock. My neighbor has an eight-foot swimming pool. They had to put it in with dynamite, and the bottom had to go to nine to make an eight-foot pool so they could, you know, do everything. And he said it was just, it, it looked like a sarcophagus down there. So that's what I have. And then putting these beds in that are like 30 inches deep, everything worked the way that it's always worked for me up until last year. And that gave me this incredible new set of feedbacks. So I've always said, you know, if you want to grow calendula, In this area, grow calendula in the fall, and then it'll probably winter kill, but if it makes it through, expect it to go away in the spring. And if you grow really, really early in the spring, you might get a little bit of uh, beauty out of it before the summer kills it. Right now, I have calendula in my garden that I planted March of last year, and it looks beautiful. That's totally changed my perspective, which is going to lead to journaling. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I think one of the things that you really should do for yourself right now is go to like almanac.com or the new farmer's almanac or whatever. Just run a Google search or DuckDuckGo search and search for average last frost date for and put your zip code in or something like that and calculate your last frost date. When do you typically no longer get frosts? And then I think it would be a great idea for either to do it um, with math or figure it out in your head or whatever. But I think what would even be better is just search for day calculator. And there's tons of sites out there. Um, Timeanddate.com is the one that I use to do this, and they have a date calculator. Stick in today. And if you use the one I use, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. There's a thing under that says today. Boom, you just click today, and it puts that in for you. And then enter on the end date. Your last frost date, your average last frost date. Then scroll down and it'll tell you the number of days. For me, 
It's March 28th is my average last frost date. Now, here we are just at the beginning of February. And that's like almost two months. Now, February is a short month. It's not quite the end, so we know it's less than two months. But it's almost two months. Okay. Well, that's eight weeks. A lot of the stuff that you start, you want to have growing for about six weeks before you put it out, especially if you're if you're growing season shorter. You have more time to get your stuff together if you live further north. But you really need to not miss your window because you're growing season shorter. If I'm a little bit late, it doesn't matter, right? Except I get hit with that summer darth, right? But this is why I want you to do it with a date calculator. When you look at something, and it's provided by somebody else in some way, in this case a website, it hits you harder. When I hit calculate duration and I see 52 days, I'm like, oh, shit. That sounds so much sooner than March 28th, even though they're the same date. And it puts a little bit of impetus under your ass to say, hey, maybe this is something I need to get started on. Because right now, I've got about another week, and if I want something grown six weeks before it gets put out, I'm already well past my average last frost date. Now, they always say, you know, plant a week or two after your last frost. I don't necessarily agree. And... I'll, I'll, I'm going to save my thoughts on that for when we talk about journaling. But but calculate it and get that in. And then let's talk about things you can do right now that are easy and low-tech if you've kind of slept in on this thing. I'm real good now at my season, my heavy season of garden ends, and either I plant straight into a winter garden, and now that I do some hydroponics and I've always got some aquaponics going – I don't really do a winter garden anymore. I plant, I, I grow through the winter with a cover crop. Right now I'm growing purple top turnip. I'm growing uh, daikon radish. I'm growing barley. And I'm growing a really, really hardy winter pea. I mean, re- like these 20-degree days coming, it won't care. It is uh, just an incredibly uh, cold, hardy Austrian winter pea. And... So I'm doing that, and that's going to control my weeds. I'm not going to have any weed issues. When I'm ready to plant, I'm just going to be taking barley tops if they're formed enough for the ducks, and then I'm just going to be dropping everything as mulch because I got that done a little later than I should have, but I got it done. Let's. But I'm going to tell you that back when I lived in Arlington and I had my little garden sought in the backyard and I had a J-O-B like an average person and all, every year I knew what I was supposed to do in the winter, plant a winter garden, or put in a cover crop. And there's plenty of years where by the time you got around to early March and it was time to start planting some things, things that were not really sensitive to the frost so you could get in you know, and get going like peas or whatever. And the first thing I had to do was dig crabgrass and roots and docks and all kinds of things out of that garden. Because you get busy, you go into the holidays, you just... You know, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I was really bad about it. Because... As soon as you hit September, it was dove season, and then you had archery season, and then rifle season, and small game, and all that. And like your whole your whole mission from a food production shifted. So let's say that's you. And right now, you know, you look out, and your garden's got a little bit of the winter weeds starting to come up. But you know that that sucker is going to be grown in heavily and require double digging or something to get it back into shape. And all kinds of, you then you have root masses and all kinds of crap. You have perennial crabgrasses and stuff that are going to be in there. Just tarp it. That's one of the simplest things you can do right now. And you can go get like six mil cheap black plastic. The big giant roll of it for under 20 bucks at the Home Depot or Lowe's. And if you, if you feel a little bit better with it, do a double layer. Most of that stuff's 10 foot wide. And it comes out five foot wide. It's folded over and then rolled up. So you can just pull out the length of your bed if you have four foot wide or short or, or thinner beds and put it a couple feet longer in the bed and cut it with a razor knife and put it there and weight it down with rocks or boards or whatever. I like to use old scrap like two by four and stuff like that because you can take the end and kind of roll it up and then tuck it in. And that way when the wind blows, it doesn't go nowhere. That's it. That is like, that is easy cakewalk, right? It's also a good time for planting and building raised beds. Raised beds are great for a lot of applications, and this is a good time of year to be sourcing material for fill. 
sourcing material for the beds themselves, choosing a bed material. I've, I've talked about that a lot, so I won't go much into it today. I'll just say that you know if you can do it, using poured concrete is probably the, the, the most long-term solution you can do. That's also not ugly. You can use cinder blocks. I find them to be kind of off-putting. I use landscape timbers because that's economically the easiest thing for me to do as deep as I need to go. But what you'll realize when you start building raised beds is if you're building raised beds in a place where you don't have a lot of material that you can use from the land itself and you're going to have to bring in material, quality material on a sizable raised bed operation may cost more than the beds themselves. Um, and that's, that's something to consider and start figuring out how you're going to deal with it right now. But I want you to, if you're getting into gardening, and I want you to really think about it before you do a raised bed garden, especially raised bed borders or something like that, right? Hilled up is one thing, but bordered in conventional raised bed the way I do or you see on you know YouTube or whatever. The raised bed is the perfect tool for the person that needs it. It is wasted money and materials for the person who doesn't. I've explained why hundreds of times I do it here, and it's because I have no soil. I also have these little critters that run around called ducks that if I just make a hill, they go in there and eat it. And I live in Bermuda grass ground zero, and it's a lot harder to keep that grass up. So those are all decent reasons. If you live in a place where you have deep Soil, and I don't mean that you have like really great topsoil a foot deep. I'm just saying you have dirt. You can dig a hole, and you can dig down a couple of feet, and you can keep going. Then raising your beds, unless you're in a place where it's too wet, is probably a mistake. The moisture and the coolness is down in the ground. Why would you want to bring the plant up in the warmth and dry? Again, unless you have a high water table or something. So really consider whether or not a raised bed is right for you. I talk often about my grandfather teaching me to garden in Pennsylvania. He would have beat my ass, I swear to God, if I would have tried to build a raised bed. He would have been like, you're wasting good wood. Where the hell are we going to get all that soil from? It's already there. Like, I mean, it would have made no sense to him to build a raised bed. In fact, it would have made no sense to him so powerfully. It may have been hard for him to, to accept that they were the right tool for the right job somewhere else. I think if you'd have put him on a piece of land like that and he had tried it, he'd have figured out real quick what needed to happen. But initially, I can see him going, what the hell are you doing? Right? I mean, just he was just an old coal miner, Ukrainian old, old Ukrainian coal miner uh, that grew up through the Great Depression and served in World War II. He had that attitude, you know, that, what are you doing? I don't have to do that. Are you stupid? I mean, that's how he would have been. And he would have had a point depending on where you are. Now, if you want raised bed because you like the way they look, if it's because what your wife will let you do, or what, that's fine. I'm just saying that a lot of places, a raised bed is a waste of labor, money, and resources. So know why you're doing it if you're going to do it. You can just put in beds. They don't have to be raised. Um, think about all the people who do spin farming. You know, where you farm in somebody's backyard, like Curtis Stone used to do. None of those people put in raised beds. They put in-ground beds in. That's how we've been growing food forever. So don't get addicted to the raised bed. Um, and I really think it's a good idea to really... <clears throat> Review and learn the lessons from your prior year. So many times I hear people, every year, every year I plant cucumbers and I only get a few cucumbers. And, and, and the cucumber beetles come and I, I can't figure out how to control them. You know what you should do? You should probably not grow cucumbers or any cucumbers for a year. Let's stop giving those cucumber beetles exactly what they want, exactly where they want it, exactly the way that they want it. And let's break the pest cycle unless you figure out how you're going to do something differently. If you know you're going to do something completely differently, then go ahead and keep trying. But if you have not yet figured out what you're going to do differently, and something always fails, and something else does really well, just grow more of the thing that does really well, if, if that makes sense. There's a lot of lessons like that, and I, I really think that it comes from having a journal if you really want to do it right. And we live in a world today where you can do everything with a spreadsheet or an app or online or whatever. And I'm going to tell you that I think when it comes to like your own version of Thomas Jefferson's garden book, I think a nicely bound journal. I'll see if I can find something I think would make a good one for you. The one I have is really old, and it's not full yet, so I haven't had to replace it for a long time. Um, but something that 
I want something that I'm doing this with to be something that, you know, if my grandson tells his grandson someday, look what I have, and shows him those old tattered pages with my fingerprints on some of them from dirt, that you can smell it, you can, like, connect back to me. Because it won't be that way if it's digital. And I'm not saying not to even have a digital version of it, because that's got other advantages, right? But to me, that is really a great way to do it. And I also think that it it makes it more material for you when you're reading it and when you're reviewing it. So I'm going to tell you, you put whatever you want in your journal, but I'm going to tell you some things I put in mine, and I think that would be a good idea for you to include in your own. When things break bud and flower, anything like that, you go out and you look and that mulberry tree, it's not even breaking bud yet, but you see the buds swelling. Note that. Mulberry mulberry trees, you know, swelling buds. February 27th, whatever it is, right? And put down the temperature that day. Put down the temperature that day. What was the temperature that day? And anytime you see an observation, have an entry for a date and include the temperature and the conditions. Rainy, sunny, cloudy, cold front on the way but warm, whatever. And really, this is the one people will miss. Note one of specific trees. I have this one retarded peach tree. It'll probably never make a peach ever. It's got flowers on it right now. It's global warming that you did not know. It's it's the same tree every year in the same spot, and it makes no sense. It's a tree that actually is probably cooler than all the other trees that are also peach trees on the property, yet it flowers every year. I don't know why. It's not even a particularly known-to-be early variety. I'd say it's an early variety, but it's not. It's like a later early variety, if that makes sense. It just does. But it's interesting for me to look at year-to-year when it flowers. And what you start seeing is you actually have uh, future tellers on your property. And you can have things go way out of cycle, but often there is like, when this one tree flowers, it's highly improbable that I'm going to never get, I'm going to get another frost that year. Old saying in the South is when the blackberries flower, plant your tomatoes. The blackberries, no. Well, I believe that individual plants develop some sort of consciousness, not in a woo-woo way, but some way we can't really explain. And maybe the word consciousness is not even the right word. I don't know if maybe we don't have the right word for this thing yet. Where they it becomes in touch with the land and the climate and the, the pressures and all of the things that, that it can be sensed by a plant, and some of which we maybe have not yet understood. And they often know things before we do. <clears throat> and I, again, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about woo-woo shit here. I don't mean <clears throat> that a blackberry bush knows something the way you know something. I'll put it this way. People say things like turkeys are stupid. And anybody that's actually cared for turkeys knows turkeys aren't stupid. They know what they know really well. There's just some things they don't know that are foreign to a turkey. A turkey does not comprehend, in general, turkeys do not comprehend fences. They'll totally fly over a fence. But that was because that particular thought crossed that little turkey mind right now to fly. So I flew over the fence. But it doesn't mean that understood there was a fence there. So then you got a turkey that flies over a fence that wants to come home, walking back and forth in front of the fence they flew over to get on the other side, and you saw them stupid. Where will a turkey find a fence in nature? And the answer is nowhere. <clears throat> we took the turkey out of nature and put them in an artificial environment that they've never developed the intelligence to understand. It doesn't make them stupid. If you've ever hunted turkeys, you know how not stupid turkeys are. Especially if you hunt turkeys like spring gobbler season in an area with public hunting. You know they're actually smart. I think that there's an intelligence in all living organisms that works that way. They know what they know well. And if you identify certain individuals, not every individual, but certain individuals on your property, you'll actually figure out that some of those individual trees, 
shrubs, etc. You know, perennials are soothsayers in a way. You should definitely record rain events. When you get a ma- like if it rains a little bit, I mean that's not a big deal. But when you get a, a good rain, the day, the time the rain started, the time that it stopped, and how much you got, and the temperature. Always, always temperature. Because it's like, as you go through it, it's like taping, taking the temperature of this being at the time and seeing your entire property or your entire region as a being. All this life together working as a, as a collective in a way. Um, extremely warm and cold days for the season. You know, I if we get a 20-something degree freeze, I'm going to note we got a hard freeze, 26 degrees. The weatherman said 28, didn't know what he was talking about, actual temperature when I woke up, 25 degrees. Remained below freezing until time of day. Only hit X for top temperature. Any precipitation, right? That I want to kind of note that. Or when we're sitting here and it's mid-February and all of a sudden we're looking at a day, it's 84 degrees, I want to note that as well. And on that 84-degree day, what was the overnight low? And did something, like sometimes you go back. That's why I like these books to do this with. So you get like an 84-degree day. Ten days later, you're down below zero. You know, hmm, wait a minute. Is there? So noting that on this day, this is what happened, and ten days later, and then kind of referencing back, hard to believe it was you know 84 degrees just seven days earlier. You might find that there's a pattern of that behavior in, in, in weather that's unique to maybe not an area that, like, a lot of you live somewhere where your weather report isn't really going to be accurate for you. Not this level of accuracy. But what I mean by that is, like, when we lived in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, the weather that we got was from Philadelphia, you know, on the news or what have you. And so a lot of times you get weather that's like the closest big area, and there can be pretty big variances that matter. Just kind of you understanding the pulse of your land. Note bird migrations or animal behavior. If you have deer in your area, when you see deer for the first time in that year that have babies, when you see the first fawns, you note that. When you see bucks early in winter and they still have their racks, you know that when you stop seeing bucks that are obvious and you start paying attention, like that deer's a buck, no antlers. Note that the antler drops happened. When you see those first bucks putting on antlers with, with, with uh, velvet, note, you know, note that. And you might think, what does that have to do with winter? You're going to be noting all these other things that are going on. And what you end up doing is you become more in touch with the ecosystem that you're operating and you become more a part of it. And so when next year you see those deer and they're not yet putting on antlers with velvet, you think to yourself, oh, and you, you, you know, uh, and then you go back to the year before or maybe the year before that. Is this in keeping with what's normal or are the deer behaving differently? Are they moving faster or slower? It's a lot more reliable than a freaking groundhog in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, folks. And including things like bird migrations. That's an incredible window into what's what's happening right now. When you have prior years to compare it to. That's why you will not remember. So there's times when I see geese. And they're heading north. Right? And I'm like, I don't think winter's over yet. And if a couple days later you hear, and that flock is going back south, it might not be the same one, but there's a flock. They probably made a mistake. If a couple days later you hear, and there's more of them going north, trust the goose. Trust the goose, man. I'm telling you, like, when blackbirds move through areas. Like, we have some intersections here in in Texas where, like, no car gets through unscathed. (laughs) I mean, major intersections, like, you know, four-way intersections at major interstates where you got your access roads and your clover leaves and all and there's huge you know power lines and everything and if you're getting off that exit your car is coated and they move through and then they're gone and they do it in the fall and they do it in the spring I'm talking about grackles here 
there's there is a correlation between what's happening in the weather and that movement of those birds. So whatever you observe, um, while plants emerging, especially like ones that are ready for harvest and things like that. So if you're lucky enough to live where like wild ramps grow, they're one of the first wild edibles to show up. And so a lot of times we get busy. And if we have that book and go, well, what was going on, you know, through, let's read, you know, week or two of entries around this time last year. Wild rant. Ooh, I should check. Maybe I worked that into a place, a little place I know to forage on the way home. Like that type of thing. And it also, again, it puts you in tense with this larger concept of like the biome itself is an organism. You know, when mushrooms show up, you can do that, especially in the fall, right? Or spring. There's certain mushrooms that come up in the spring. Anything, when wild blackberries, you know, and, and if you, let's say you grow domestic blackberries, do your domestic blackberries tend to flower and produce about in sync with the wild variants or a little bit after, a little bit earlier? And that'll start to clue you in on what's happening, you know, before it does. And it's really amazing how living in a place, observing and interacting and recording this information, um, it, it, it's really interesting. Insect activity. When you see the first of a particular insect of the year, good, bad, or ugly, doesn't matter. Like, you just, I ain't seen none, and now here is one. Probably plenty more are coming, but that observation of the first observation of them showing up, or when they go away. You have a particular insect species, maybe it's a pest, and you're annoyed with it, and then you find that it kind of disappears around September 1st on the other side of this thing. Well, you might figure out that the plant that it most particularly causes problems with is a really good plant in the fall if it's got a good start. And then you might actually be protecting that plant in an indoor or otherwise sheltered location as a seed start and, and, and be putting that, if you wanted to put it out around September 1st, into a pot around July 15th or maybe August 1. Because now you're going to put that plant into a position where that pest just isn't there. And let me tell you something about when people tell you when that pest will be gone. Don't you believe it? Insects do not read books. They read the biome that you're in. Um, anything that you think is useful, including how you felt. Yeah, I felt really good today when I took my walk around the gardens. I'm really in anticipation of, you know. Or I felt kind of like, I kind of felt like, Spring's never coming today, and this freaking pipe broke, and some bitch, I had to fix it, and I got a late start, and I don't even know why I'm writing this, right? Because what will happen is inevitably you'll feel that same way about that same time in a different year. And you'll come more in touch with a few things. One, this too shall pass, but you'll also come into touch with you are part of the ecosystem. We are naturally, we are naturally interacting with ecosystems when we, we conduct horticulture. We are a horticultural species. We almost can't help ourselves. What, what do people do when they when they eat something and they have something left over and they're somewhere where it's easy to, to stick it in the dirt? We stick it in the dirt. Not just because we want to grow something. I mean, like, what kid hasn't been like, I don't want any more of this. I'm sticking to dirt. We have a natural innate behavior to shove things in dirt, especially soft dirt, right, where it's easy. Versus hard dirt, we need to plow. We like to put stuff in soft dirt. We're part of the ecosystem, and by recording what's going on, including within ourselves, we get more in touch with it. Now, with all that, let me throw you just a real quick list here of some things I'm going to be growing this year and why. Uh, number one, one of my big home run discoveries last year, and I've grown plenty of different eggplants over the years, but there's a, a, a variety called Ping Tung. And to me, I'll, I don't know that I'll grow as far as an elongated, small-form Asian eggplant, anything else ever again. Like, for that thing, I have found the plant. It is it is delicious. It has a little bit of sweetness to it. It has none of that alkaline ashtray characteristic that big giant eggplants have, like your typical ones you buy in a grocery store. That's why you have to usually, if you prepare those right, what you do is you slice them up and you salt them and you sweat them out. And whatever that 
alkaline crap is in it pulls it out and then they taste fine. You don't have to do that with these. A lot of eggplants you don't have to do that with. But when it comes to that form, kind of sausage-shaped purple, I'm done. That, that, that thing, and even some sort of pest got to it in the midsummer when it was at its hottest and a little bit stressed, and it made a bunch of little holes. It would look something like you would expect like white fly or flea beetle to do, and they didn't. it didn't care. It didn't care. You know, maybe a leaf or two died, the rest of them just, oh, I got some holes in me now, whatever. And then when the when the, the cooler period hit in that second flush in the fall, they just, ah, I've got gallons of it dehydrated. I I probably don't even need to grow any next year. I could probably live a year on all the freaking dehydrated eggplant I want. I probably won't even dehydrate next year. I'll give it away because it'll it'll store for a couple of years. But I like fresh. It's just a great plant. Um, now that i found that, I'm like, since eggplants do well, I want to try a different variety this year, something totally different. And there's one called Melanzana. Melanzana. And it is supposed to have character. It's you, you cut this up and you saute it, and it's almost like you did peppers and tomatoes. It's kind of like halfway in between the two with characteristics of both. It is a really cool-looking fruit, and it's totally different than the ping tongue. And, you know, eggplant in general just does really well here. So... Uh, and I've also kind of determined that, in spite of what I'm going to tell you about a squash, that it is difficult to grow zucchini here, and that ping tongue eggplant stands in really nicely for a zucchini squash in a vegetable saute. It ain't the same, but it's the same but different, man. Uh, but both of those eggplants, I'm also going to be growing, again, uh, Texas wild cherry tomato, this time from my own seed, say from last year. I have had so much trouble with blight and other tomato diseases in Texas, and we're notorious for it, especially in this particular area. And I've always done okay, but basically I grow tomatoes. They get to a certain point in the year where I'm like, I'm done. I'm not going to try to, to, to nurse this plant for another five weeks into August to get two more tomatoes off it. I'm just going to get it out of there and plant something else. And last year I did the same thing, and I caught, I had it. God, I had tomatoes out, the brains out of tomatoes. And even the Texas cherry tomatoes started to look a little like, it wasn't quite where I would have done it other years, but since I had committed to that, I just cut them all. And that's when I planted some different beans and stuff. And then the fall came, and it grew back from the roots in the ground like a perennial does. And I was like, wow. Wow, that that is the survivor tomato that I'm looking for. And they grow like a tomato is about half the size of a typical cherry tomato. They call, a lot of people refer to them as current tomatoes. Um, to me, I don't care how big a tomato is. I mean, I, I don't live on tomatoes. I don't make big jars of sauce or whatever. I don't think they'd be good for that. Um, I pretty much use I make some bruschettas and, and pico de gallos and all. I don't want too many carbohydrates, so I'm not going to eat like a pound of tomato. And to me, I... Chopped up tomatoes with some basil on a burger is just as good as a slice of tomato. It's better. You don't, like, bite into it, and it pulls, and, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? It all works better anyway. So I'm totally content with those being my primary tomato. I will grow probably Defiant as a full-size tomato has been the one that I found as a bonus for you today. But I'm going to try another cherry tomato because cherry tomatoes do really well for me. And I found one called Berry's Crazy Cherry Tomato. It's available from Baker Creek. Uh, Baker Creek probably has everything I'm mentioning today. But remember, we have quite a few seed providers in the MSB as well to give you discounts, so don't forget them. Um, but Barry's Crazy Cherry Tomato, it's a yellow cherry. And I did find it in the Baker Creek catalog. Damn those guys and their stupid catalog to make you spend more money you need to. Um, brilliant marketing piece, that catalog. <clears throat> and, uh, man, the pictures of it. Just person, like, cut the limb off and holding it up. And there's like, what am I going to do with one limb of them? And to me, having issues with tomato diseases, what I want is, and unlike when I was in Pennsylvania, and I could literally have taken a tomato, taken the heel of my boot and dug a hole, slammed the tomato in the hole, mushed it up with my boot and kicked dirt out of it, back over it, and then just when the tomatoes came up, I could have like pulled a few out to transplant killed all but one and let it grow, and right from where I threw that tomato on the ground, I would grow more tomatoes than I could use on one plant. Unlike that, I, where I, in that situation, I wanted tomatoes that were going to give me a little bit of tomatoes every day over a long period of time. 
since I know I'm going to lose the plant, or even if I don't lose the plant, I'm going to lose its production in our heat in summer, and it'll start producing again in the fall. I want big flush of production. And, uh, again, my main method of preserving tomatoes is dehydration. Also, um, I just for number five, because I can't leave it out because I love them so much in all shapes, forms, and sizes, all the peppers, right? And I'm not really going to grow all the peppers, but I will grow a huge variety of peppers. Some of my favorite are uh, Anaheim's, just your big chilies, um, poblanos, jalapenos, and sweet bells. I really like cubanelles as well. Cubanelles and Marconi's are two of my favorite peppers to grow. Uh, they fill totally different niches in the world of cuisine. Cubanelles are kind of a thin, and they have kind of that banana flavor, banana, not banana flavor, banana pepper flavor, that if you've ever had banana pe fried banana peppers, you know what I'm talking about. And it doesn't taste anything like a banana, right? But it has this, it's an undeveloped, like a not, like not quite ripe in a good way flavor of pepper. And banana peppers generally, even when they fully ripen, they still kind of have that. The Cubanelle kind of has that in the green stage when it's considered a great frying pepper. And then it'll turn orange, yellow, red in progressive order. And it develops a full, deep flavor, but it's thin-walled. Where the Marconi's, as soon as they're green, they're sweet, and they turn red, and they have a very thick wall. And it's good for contrast. So there's more about peppers than you probably needed to know. But I will be growing peppers. And fennel. Um, probably Florence has become my favorite go-to variety of fennel, but I learned something about fennel that I think is really cool. <clears throat> and that is, if one leaves a fennel plant alone and doesn't harvest it, unless it goes to seed, and then once it goes to seed, doesn't touch it, at least if someone lives in a climate like mine, and it has been freezing this year and it has not stopped the progression of this, The main bulb will get huge, it'll get loose, the outside will kind of die away of the bulb itself, but the plant will keep growing. And it'll go through a cycle, and if, you know, this time of year you go out and take a look at the bottom of it, and you have like five or six division bulbs of fennel going. And they're much smaller than a full-size one. How big do they get? I don't know. I harvested my first one uh, a couple days ago when my, my, my wife wanted me to make some stew, and, and one of the things I put in was fennel. And I used the entire, I used the bulb, the thick part, the thin part, the stems, all the way up to the fronds in, in the soup, and it was fantastic. And to be able to go out, almost, it was almost February, it's, you know, it was January still, but almost February, and harvest fresh fennel, having not touched it since March the prior year, even though it was a smaller bulb, if I had harvested it, I could have never stored it that long. I would have had to grow, you know, like starting it and producing it now, would, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am yet. I usually am able to put fennel out I, this time of year, honestly. after This time of year from my journaling, if I want to put out fennel, I want to put out small plants to grow out instead of just direct seed. I want to put them out right after this freeze we're about to get. That's when I want them to go out. They go out about three to four weeks prior to my last frost date is where it works out to. Because we usually get, right about this time of year, a really hard, hard, hard freeze. And then we'll get one more down in freezing temperature, but it won't be as bad. Oddly, this is why you keep journals. Oddly, when we don't get one in February, we almost always get one right toward the end of March when we shouldn't have one at all. It's a weird thing, but it happens consistently. Um So that's what I learned about fennel. You can overwinter fennel, and it will divide off and start producing new bulbs, like a divider onion or something like that. And I think it's really cool, and I don't think I would plant fennel for that purpose, but what I'm going to do this year is plant more than I need and let some of it just go. And I can plant them closer, so when I go in and I harvest one, then the next one takes over. So that's I'm going to use that to my advantage without just trying to create totally perennial Fennel. I don't know how, how long this will go. And I have an odd feeling that since it kind of like basically the center goes away and it grows in a circle, if you harvested all but one of them, it will, it will kind of migrate in the direction that you harvest it. It's, it's an interesting thing. I, I don't know yet, so I don't want to say more. Uh, next, uh, Trombocino squash. 
Trombocino is T-R-O-M-B-O-C-H-I-N-O. Trombocino squash. If you put trombone, like trombone zucchini in a search engine, you'll find it. It's, it's, it's far more common than I think people think it is. But these are the ones you've seen me holding where like I'm hold, it's like from my ankles up to my head. These long, they're like a super long neck pumpkin. Squash bugs and squash borers have not been able to kill them. They attack them. They make them look bad at certain times of the year and all, but they have not been able to kill them where I live. And I've had squash bugs and beetles destroy almost every squash I've ever planted. And so I get good production out of them. They're, when you harvest them young, and you can harvest them pretty big for this, when they're just still light green in color, they taste exactly like a, regular, like a zucchini squash with a huge advantage. The long neck has no seeds. It's solid flesh. So zucchini, you know, as it gets bigger, it gets stickier, woodier, whatever. These things, all they do is if you let them go long enough, they start to turn orange, and they basically become a butternut, a butternut squash. Except, again, you can have, like, I have some that are, like, four feet long. The neck's about the diameter of my forearm, and that neck is, you know, four foot long, and then there's a bulb about the size of a softball at the bottom, and only the bulb has seed and pulp. So you can take, a, like when you want to make a squash soup, for instance, or a, uh, you want to do a roasted squash, cut a section of the neck, however much you want to use, and take a, um, a peeler, like a potato peeler, and it just peels right off, and then dice it up, and you've got completely ready to go squash. It's, it's amazing. Now, once you cut it, you've got to kind of keep using it, because it, it doesn't keep real well. Although it freezes fine, as long as you're going to be doing something that's going to be like a soft cook with it. Um, but, yeah, you could freeze it. So if you can't use all of the one, the beauty of it, before you cut it, I mean, mine are just sitting out on my outdoor bar. I'll probably bring them in when it's going to go into the 20s, but really they just, just set them on my, I have like a concrete countertop cooking bar where my grill's built and all my stuff in my outdoor kitchen. And I can look out my window, I just see them, they're just sitting there. I don't do anything with them. Uh, they store as, as, as well as a butternut, not quite as long as a butternut. Uh, so I love those. Red noodle beans, grew the hell out of those last year. Didn't get them planted till late. And the only mistake I thought I made last year is I didn't plant them early in the spring. I went with Scarlet Runners, and they just don't do that well for me. They do okay, but they don't do like the red noodle beans. So the Chinese red noodle bean, these things grow up to a meter long, and they'll be about as big around as your pinky. And all you want to do when they start producing is keep an eye on them, And they kind of are like, not like a stick, but stick-like in, in their firmness. And so they start really, really narrow, and then they get a little thicker, and as they get thicker, they get longer. And there's a point, if you just, once you use them for a while, you'll know what I'm talking about, where they kind of start to loosen up, where they start to soften, and, and they're kind of transitioning in form. Once you know that, You want to pick them before that if you want the best bean that you can get out of them. The looser they get, the less of the flavor they have. So when they're kind of like about as big around as a pencil and somewhere between 18 and 30 inches long, it's a great time to harvest them. And they're awesome because you can go out and like if there's only three of them ready to harvest, but they're 20 inches long, and you harvest those three, you bring them in and you take a pair of shears, kitchen shears, and you cut them at about two inches. You end up with a little, you know, a little pile of beans and if you're doing a mixed vegetables it's plenty for two to four servings it's they're and they're so fast to prep um they'll can they'll freeze just like regular green beans you have to blanch them if you're going to freeze them or dehydrate them or you have problems due to the enzymes um next new zealand spinach i have not gotten this back into my life and i really think it's a mistake this is the one today that truly is a perennial in certain climates But you can grow it as an annual. This is a, a green ground covering um, that is from the New Zealand and islands around it and uh, was used by native peoples long before you know any explorers got there or what have you. Um, it is not something you're going to want to sit down and eat a bowl of it by itself. It's a mixed green, raw in other salad mixed greens together. It's fantastic. It doesn't have a problem at all getting through the summers here and it gets through our winters a lot of times they'll even have some dieback but in all but like the most harsh winter we ever had one year 
uh, it's made it through every year for me, except that one. Um, so it will probably do it for you, and you can kind of mulch around it too. That helps. And the other thing I like about it, it's very prostrate. It doesn't grow really, really tall. So if you're growing tall annuals, it makes a great ground cover interplanted with them. And since you only are going to use a small amount of it for food, for most people anyway, you know, you can take a little, take a little, take a little, and it doesn't look like you did anything. You get a good, you know, cooling ground cover from a very hardy plant. Uh, next up today is the white pearl bitter melon. I think bitter melon is something that people tend to love or hate. Because it's exactly what it sounds like. It's bitter. It's more like firm, bitter cucumber that you cook, is, is, if you've never tried it. Um, they are sort of cucumber-looking in shape. They're kind of long, but they're kind of pointed on both ends. And uh, they're bumpy. And you either know what I'm talking about or you don't. And if you've had it, you either love it or you hate it. It's, it's, it's just one of those things. It's supposed to be a superfood. It is from a part of Okinawa, indigenously, that like the people that live the oldest on average are from, along with the purple sweet potato. And by the way, the diet those people eat is incredibly high in pork. It's incredibly high in pork, just saying. Um, but this one is a little less bitter, really cool looking, and the pulp and seeds are red and sweet like a fruit. So you have this bitter melon and this sweet fruit from a single thing. And a very hardy plant as well. I'm also going to try to grow dwarf tamarillo, which are like a little citrus berry, I guess would be the way to put them. They're kind of like a kumquat, but not. And um, if you're in a warm enough climate, they will keep and become a perennial shrub, like kind of like a kumquat. Um, but even where I live, you know, if you get any good hard freeze at all, it's going to die. So greenhouses or in a pot, bring it in. You can keep it going year to year to year. But they do grow, flower, fruit, and produce in a single season, kind of like tomato. Um, actually, I would say more like peppers. A lot of people don't know this. Peppers are perennials. Like, no, they're not. Yeah, they are. We just grow them as annuals because our winters freeze. If you go to, like, parts of Florida, um... There's a pepper there, and I just got I for the towel, the towel pepper. Um, they're very, very hot, um, citrusy, habanero like thing going on, but it's unique to itself. And like St. Augustine, a lot of years in St. Augustine, it doesn't freeze at all. Some years it does, some years it doesn't. And unless you get a hard freeze, so like if you just touch freeze point for a couple hours, if that plant is well established it'll keep going so you can go down there almost year round and you'll see in public spaces these detail bushes growing and so just keep that in mind that a lot of things that we think of as perennials are actually or annuals are actually perennials it's just we're growing them as annuals in our climate that's that's what this thing is and um i've given up on growing any real citrus here and about my only other citrus e thing that i could grow uh would be Oh, God, what are they? Uh, sea berries, which also have not done well for me here. Um, as though I need another thing with thorns on it anyway. So I thought that would be a good one to try. Uh, I don't know. I only know of one source to get seeds for them, and it is Baker Creek. And then my last one that I also found in the Baker Creek catalog this year is the Mongolian Giant Sunflower. And it looks similar in a lot of ways to your typical gray and white striped sunflower, black and white striped sunflower, except this thing's huge for huge. I mean, like, you know, beyond dinner plate size for your center. And I just thought that would be a cool one to grow. And I figured with as big as they get, um, we can use them and trellis some beans on them and play with them. And there's just some spots that, you know, I'm actually at a point now where I have enough garden space that I kind of need something. And something like that, just something unique. And I thought it's always nice to put something in that you're doing just because it's fun. And so that's what that's going to be for me. Uh, my final thoughts again. Really try to enjoy this time of year. It really is a gift. And here's the thing about it. If you take this time of year and you say, I've been gifted with this period of, even if I'm busy, I'm busy doing these things, not busy pulling weeds or busy harvesting or busy planting, right? I, I, I've been gifted with this time when those things are not possible. 
And hence, I have time for these other things. And now I can do these things. I get to do this, not I have to do this. Because I kind of started today's episode with, you know, look at how many days you have, kind of lighten that fire under the butt for a reason. But on the other hand is you get to do this. You get to partner with nature and make life arise so that you can further sustain your own life. That's pretty cool. And you get this time. And the reason you do that, this stuff is work, but when you look at something as though it is a gift and you enjoy it and you're very excited about doing it, it doesn't feel like work and it really is a gift. With that, we have wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can um, do your online shopping at a little website, tspaz.com. If you do that, uh, you'll help us out no matter what you eventually buy. And today we've got a, uh, a really cool one for you. I haven't brought it around in a while. This is a, a cool little story about, about how I found out about this product. Um, it's a, a flashlight called the Nebo Larry Worklight. And it's a little like kind of pocket clip engineering style flashlight that looks like a flashlight or a light, a mechanics light. If you think about, you know, kind of the long, uh, you know, they used to be multi-bulb, but now they're like LEDs. They're all LEDs and you, you hang it underneath the hood so you can work on a car and see what you're doing. Um, it has that kind of effect. In fact, it has a magnetic bottom where you can stick it on something and do that with it, but it's a little bitty. And it runs on a couple, you know, a couple AAA batteries. And the way I found out about it is a guy that was in my audience that knew I like to bring cool stuff to people was doing a job. He's a cable installer or something like that. And so he's in an office and he's up in a ceiling where you pop the ceiling and go up in there to, you know, do whatever he had to do. And he's, you know, anybody's done that kind of work I have knows that you leave stuff up there. And so if you do that work long enough, it's almost like a giveth and receiveth. You, you, you leave enough and find enough that it balances out. So he's up there, and there's one of these little flashlights just sitting there. And the guy had turned it off or, you know, for whatever reason had set it there. It wasn't on, so it didn't kill the battery in it. And so he turned it on. I thought, man, this thing's bright. So um, he started using it, and he, he sent it to me. And uh, I was he said he was like, I wonder why they're uh, – they called the Larry, and he emailed, he emailed the company, and they sent them back, and they said that they were trying to figure out a name for the light, and it was really made with tradespeople in mind. And there was a guy that, that did work at their facility named Larry. He was an electrician. He says the hardest-working electrician they knew, so they, they named it after him. Anyway, these things usually sell for around 36 to $40, so 9 to 10 bucks a piece for a four-set. So you get four of them in different colors usually, and uh, like a variety pack. And today that's on sale for like thirty bucks. They're down to like seven bucks a piece, is what it costs, seven fifty a piece or something like that. Uh, it's a really great light, and you can find it at tspaz.com. Remember, you can always get the item of the day uh, sent to you in our daily mail if you subscribe to our email list, survival the survivalpodcast.com, and click on subscribe, and you can subscribe to our email list there, uh, or get like on our Telegram or our Discord or. Follow me on MeWe or get on Float because I use all of those as well. And since like MeWe and Float aren't running algorithms to decide whether you get to see what I put up or not, uh, it will show up in your feed whenever I put out items and shows and stuff like that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Um, all the music this week did come from John Adam, but this is one where I kind of sneaked it in as well. I said, in your next rotation, I got a song I want you to rotate in. And he, he did first week of, of this new month. And it is uh, a really cool song. It's by a guy named John Wolf, J-O-N for John, John Wolf. And uh, I first heard this song late last year, right around the fall workshop, just before our fall workshop. And I don't know when it came out, but it came out sometime last year. So I might have heard it right when it came out, or you know, maybe it came out before COVID in, in January when things were halfway somewhere between normal and crazy. And... Uh, he saw, my buddy JR was here to help me get ready for the workshop. He said, you got to hear this song, man. I know you're about my age and I know you grew up in, you know, you, you know, you're in your twenties in, in North Texas and all. And uh, he said, man, I mean, it's every single thing about being in a country bar in like 1995. And the reason I wanted this song worked in is uh, a couple of weeks ago, we played state of mind by Clint black. And that song was about how music can take you back to a place. And I said it was ironic that that song was written in the 90s, played in country bars in the 90s, 
and made people think about music that was 15 years ago or 20 years old. Right. But it made that point that by hearing a song, it can take you back to a place in time. Right. And that it was ironic that now that song was so iconic that it was anchoring me and my memories to, you know, country bars in the 90s. And I remember when I thought that, I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta get this other song in. Cause this one's doing it intentionally. Right. Like, so state of mind was kind of about how everybody has certain songs that takes them to a certain place. And it could be a country bar, or maybe you've never been a country bar in your life, or you have, and it still takes you somewhere else. Maybe it takes you back to the first time you saw a person you fell in love with. Maybe it takes you back to the time you lost somebody. Maybe it takes you back to a walk in the woods. You know, my wife and I, um, Rocky Mountain High, that's a good song, it's okay. Never really, really thought about it, never really pondered the words. Uh, but we were on a Jeep tour in uh in Colorado and uh at Rocky Mountain National Park. And when we came around the backside of the mountain, we're just kind of we're done with the tour part. You're just kind of coming down now. Um the guy driving the Jeep told the whole story about how John Denver, who wasn't known as John Denver, dumped some John something else at the time, went out there and uh you know, spent time in the area we had just driven through and And got inspired, and it was one of the songs he wrote from it. Changed his name to John Denver, became famous. And they played the song in that situation where you're like this, these huge Jeeps where you have plenty of room, even though there's more like a bus than a Jeep. And you, you're in open air, and you can feel it. And you, you're looking at these mountains that are just god-awful gorgeous, man, just amazing. And, uh, man, that song was just... There were people with tears in their eyes, you know. I mean, it was an incredible experience. We'll, we'll never hear that song and not be there. And, and then the words became more real. So there's all types of music that does that. But then there's music that knows that and uses a formula to produce music that causes it on purpose. So this will be a song that if you went to country bars in the 90s, especially in the South, especially like Oklahoma, Louisiana, Texas, etc., Georgia, I would say, yeah, um, it'll do that for you. But if you weren't, it won't, because even though it's intentional, it's still individual. It's just something that's that's big enough that you can rely on it as a songwriter to get the job done. But, man, I'll tell you what. Um, when I listen to this song, in a small way, just for a minute, I'm 24, you know, and uh, I'm at the Hitching Post in Louisville, Texas. And I don't really want to go back to that point in time in my life, but I certainly enjoyed it. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. It was gravel lots, boys throwing back that last beer. Girls touching up makeup in the side mirror. Budweiser sign shining like Vegas. A five dollar bill got you through that front door. Cowboy hat got you out on the dance floor. He'd be off to the races. If I could turn back the pages, there'd be sticks and stones, Tracy Lawrence, two tone Ford with the long bed on it, number on. Set you up for a slow dance While your buddy stood around Talking Braves and Earnhardt You were out there Trying to steal that girl's heart Feels like a world away But I say the good old days The sticks and stones Tracy Lawrence A two-tone Ford with the long bed on it Number on a napkin and an old payphone Lighting up smokes to the Through those neon 
Find me. 